Welcome to Navigating Marine Risks, a podcast series produced in partnership with AIG. Featuring panel discussions with leading maritime industry experts, our series host is Dr. Stavros Karamparidis, head of the Maritime Transport Research Group at the University of Plymouth, UK. Joining Stavros to discuss sustainable maritime supply, a decarbonized future, are Andrew Stevens, Executive Director of the Sustainable Shipping Initiative, Dr. Louise de Trimerie, Transport Policy Advisor for the European Parliament, and Wolfgang Lemaha, Supply Chain and Technology Strategist and Technology Evangelist. Welcome to Navigating Marine Risks. I'm your host, Dr. Stavros Karaberidis. With the impact of the global pandemic and ongoing military conflict in Ukraine having led to significant economic uncertainty, the maritime sector continues to experience ongoing tectonic changes. At the same time, sustainability is an increasingly important focal point of operations. How the maritime industry responds to this environment and pressures is the subject of this podcast. In this episode, we will be discussing sustainable supply, maritime logistics, and how decarbonized industry could have a stronger role in future transport and trade. Thank you for joining me today, Andrew, Luis, and Wolfgang, and welcome to all. To start, Andrew, could you please give us an update of the current state of the maritime transport sector in terms of decarbonization, implementation, and future plans? Yeah, um, thanks, Teros. And the maritime transport sector is really at the beginning of its decarbonization transformation. And there's still uncertainty around what fuels um, will be viable, available. And certainly investment decisions are coming up. Um, We're one third of the way through this decade of action. And with vessels lifespans of around 30 years, sometimes longer, ships being built today will still be at sea in 2050. So we're just one investment cycle really away from that magic date that uh, everybody converges on. Uh, Fortunately, there are many ways to act and we already see uh, several positive signals of change and collaboration. And and some examples are Maersk and CMA CGM that are ordering ships to run on methanol. Uh, The first vessel goes in the water this year for for Maersk. Uh, Initiatives like the Port of Vancouver's ECHO program which rewards ships for slow steaming, carrying on with some of the SSI members, Cloudness combination carriers um, have a sustainability linked loan based on their eco performance. They also have linked uh, sustainability with contract freightment, freightment contracts with South 32, one of their clients, uh, Chartra, uh, working towards emissions reductions. And there are other collaborations such as the cargo owners for zero emission vessels, or some know this as COZE, which is a cargo-owned-led platform for collaboration that enables maritime freight customers to come together and use their brand power to achieve economies of scale to accelerate uh, maritime decarbonization. And one of the initiatives that they have run is the Zero Emission Maritime Buyers Alliance, or known as Zemba, which brings together many of the um, operators who alone cannot stimulate or trigger uh, successful availability of some of these new fuels, but together aggregated demand can. I guess we're also seeing the beginning of a shift away from carbon tunnel vision to a more systemic view of the transition. Uh, for example, in Barry is building a low CO2 steel ship and shipping cargo carriers are starting to focus on low carbon steel by signing up to initiatives like Steel Zero, 
and responsible steel. Um, for shipping to decarbonize sustainably, we need a systemic view though uh, throughout the entire ship life cycle and supply chain. So that means and includes oceans and biodiversity, communities that are affected, people, transparency, finance, energy. These really are all key factors in facilitating the pathway to a decarbonized, sustainable and resilient maritime sector aligned with the Paris Agreement goal, uh, which we all know is, is, is about limiting warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Hopefully that covers uh, a brief snapshot, Stavros. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yes, indeed, it covers uh, that. Wolfgang, do you see any uh, choke points for achieving decarbonization in the maritime sector? I see uh, first uh, two, two types of choke points. There are the general ones. I mean those that are relevant for the entire transport sector and, and beyond. And there are specific hurdles that are specific to the maritime industry. Generally, I see multiple decarbonization challenges. The, the first one is uh, the struggle with the business case. And I think Andrew already pointed towards that. So um, decarbonization is a challenge, a real challenge from an economic point of view. In general, decarbonization comes at a cost. An example from the, the road transportation sector is that, for example, a um, electric or fuel cell truck costs you between 300 and 600,000 euro. And a, a diesel power truck costs you 100. So there is a, there is a gap, um, at least initially, and um, regulation can definitely help to, to bridge that gap. Then there is insufficient collaboration. I heard Andrew saying uh, or listing a number of collaborations and they are there. Nevertheless, uh, I think that we have to overcome our, our natural reflexes and uh, work closer together. And in particular, and also that was, that was mentioned by Andrew, across multiple value chains or industries. Uh, so it's a, it's a much bigger effort compared to what we are usually uh, dealing with. Then we have technology immaturity. Uh, many solutions are not mature. We talk about ammonia-powered ships, but they hardly exist today. We talk about green methanol-powered ships, but total, the total global production of green methanol today does not suffice to only power the order book of Maersk. And there is CMA, CGM, and we are at the beginning of the cycle. So there is a huge responsibility uh, on the shoulders of the energy sector to, to ramp up. And uh, we talk about uh, shore power systems to eliminate emissions from auxiliary engines at birth, but the local grids cannot support the demand. Another example, which is important to me, is the struggle with uh, the calculation of greenhouse gas or carbon emissions. Although we have a lot of technology, we still struggle to exactly calculate the emissions. And I think we need a major push to make that a must uh, in the entire industry, transportation, including shipping. And then uh, I would like to finish this list of general points uh, with a topic which bothers me a lot. I, I call it lobbyism. You could name it also differently, but this is the spread of doubts and and concerns which slow down decarbonization. 
Can you speak more about the specific hurdles? I have been inspired by Harris Zografakis. I don't know whether you know him. He is a UK lawyer who is an expert in the less discussed field, which is the web of contracts in maritime trade. And why did I get inspired? Because according to my own experience, I made quite some efforts in the past to drive change in the sector. Everyone will sooner or later be caught in that web. Uh, so the existing contracts and the system, the architecture, which is uh, pretty traditional and old and, and doesn't really support um, decarbonization efforts or many of them. Another point in general on, on the specific side is that shipping is not consumer facing. So there is no direct pressure uh, as we see it in the consumer facing industries. But uh, here the lever is... Uh, scope three emissions, and if the, the pressure increases, uh, that the consumer-facing industries need to reduce scope three uh, drastically, then we will see this also in the in the maritime sector. But it's it's not yet there. Then there is the offshore nature of the industry. So many corporate entities involved in maritime trade are registered and domiciled in jurisdictions with with opaque co corporate structures and practically non-existent director accountability. So that's um, a situation which also has caused uh, uh, challenges in other, in other fields within the industry. Then we have a challenge due to spot trading, spot chartering, spot bunkering, everything which is made or was, was developed for to, to have short-term optimization. And this stands in the way of longer-term investments and longer-term perspectives. And this then is, is uh, also aggravated uh, by, by the fact that we have a lot of SMEs, small and mid-sized enterprises that just uh, lack chronically uh, resources to drive decarbonization. And, um, when we speak about partnerships, I go back to that point. Most of these partnerships are consisting of big players, and we are missing the long tail. Of course, these actions of the big players have an impact on the long tail, but I think we need to have more thinking on small and mid-sized enterprises, and that's a choke point. What do you see as the main issues regarding the financing of this transition? Uh, we face complexities in financing, insurance, around retrofits, and risks of stranded assets. Um, I think there is, uh, if you dive deeper into that field, we will see that uh, we will have difficulties with uh, on, and to overcome uncertainties and, and just um, pretty, pretty high hurdles in the financing and insurance area. There is the bill of lading. Uh, with its features and uh, the, the due diligence of crude and ship owners that don't make uh, decarbonization easy. And then if we are in, in such a, a nebulous and um, complex environment, uh, we have also to be mindful that uh, international trade is litigious and really not collaborative. So we will go through, through a lot of litigation but this is needed also to clarify and define the boundaries and the notions. 
And uh, you asked about the choke points. I'm, I, I like more to speak about solutions and I, I just, uh, uh, we have woven them in from time to time. And I, I want to say at the end of that list that this not should not and must not hold us back. There is a lot we can do, but um, there is also a lot of work in front of us. Louise, what are your thoughts on this? I would like to pick up on something that Wolfgang uh, just made on, on lobbyism about the uh, spreads of, of doubt and trying to uh, slow down the progress towards decarbonization. And it is really something that I've experienced in the past months working on those maritime files uh, in the EU. It's a really difficult line to tread as policymakers because it goes both sides. You either have groups representing uh, point of views that try to delay decarbonization. And on the other hand, you also have groups trying to push forward. So it's definitely a topic that I think we should be transparent about and we should start a conversation about lobbyism in this sector. Thank you very much for the valid point, Luis. I think what you're mentioning is great. And the fact that you're giving us some insights from an organization that is facing that kind of issues. From what I'm getting is like that we have to deal with a multidimensional problem and there are so many factors. I'm going to cherry pick one of them, the fuel availability. So do you think that we will have one fuel that will dominate the sector or we're going to see a multi-fuel future in order to reach decarbonization? Because you mentioned earlier on a couple of initiatives. I can keep that short. Um, there is no silver bullet to decarbonization. So I would first widen it. It's, that it's not only about fuels, but when we talk about fuels, um, what works for one business model does not work for others. Uh, for example, short sea shipping can be decarbonized with electric motors or biofuel. Uh, deep sea shipping requires ammonia and green methanol, what we have uh, spoken about, Andrew and myself already. And uh, I think that's the, the short answer. So we will have a variety of uh, fuel fuels in the mix. And also because the supply locations origins will change. And when we are uh, moving fuels around, that's also uh, carbon intense. Uh, so, but answer is uh, we will see a multi-fuel future. Thank you very much, Wolfgang. And going Back to the last point that you mentioned, Andrew, what is your opinion with regards to the net zero fuel availability? Do you think it's going to be something easy? Because Wolfgang said we're going to see a different supply chain model in terms of fuel supply. I think we're still mostly in this talking and planning phase, but those first movers, as I mentioned, and Wolfgang also spoke to uh, the MERSCs and the CMA CGMs, um, you know, they're kickstarting that transition to at least pilot and test some fuels. And, and I pick up on Wolfgang's point, it's it's all great to you know move this into action. And I think the piloting and first movers um, leading the way is, is essential. But that point that Wolfgang touched on, of, you know, those that are following the long tail. So we need to not just have followers because there's an enormous amount of ship owner operators that are puzzled and bothered by this transition. and very aware of those risks of stranded assets, et cetera. So what we need is, is a sharing of learnings and experience for those followers to become fast followers. Um, so adoption and any adaption uh, that is required is, is, is also essential and key. Um, so what we see is that uh, this transition over a number of years uh, until we reach um, convergence perhaps on 
one or two leading fuels of net zero capabilities and, and sufficient for um, intensity to power the vessels effectively and efficiently is that there will be a multi-fuel landscape for, for this period while the industry adjusts, move forwards, and, and, and for regulation to also uh, underpin, support the advances being made, and more than anything, uh, to bring certainty and de-risk the fleet renewals and shifts that we all predict will happen, but need to, uh, certainty to, to allow the acceleration of the transition. Louise, following what Andrew and Wolfgang have just mentioned, how is this reflected in policies? Yes, I think it was a very interesting discussion and a lot of points, I mean, I can easily reiterate huh, the, the points on that the transition needs to be across multiple value chains, the importance of scope three emissions, uh, due diligence, etc. And especially when it's about fuels, it's for me one of the key debates, which also recently took place in the EU, and it will be on the policy agenda uh, for the coming years. Um, the main message for me is, and I think um, Wolfgang also mentioned that, that it's about investing in assets while avoiding stranded assets. And many fuels will be preferred as transi transitional fuels. However, I think it's important to move towards climate neutral solutions and not lock in short term transition solutions, especially in Europe, where we will see more stringency starting from 2035 in recent uh, policy decisions. And I agree with Wolfgang, we do see front runners and I would like to spin it um, in uh, from the point of view of the uh, development of new type of engines for new fuels. But when it comes to deployment, we do see that we are very at the initial stages, as Andrew just managed, uh, mentioned, the planning and the testing, the piloting. Um, but I do think we're in a, in a turning point in deciding uh, in which technologies to invest and to go for. And I would like to make a reflection linked to the title of this series, uh, namely navigating marine risks, where the word is used on risks. And I think my mindset is uh, one like uh, Wolfgang, if I may say. I think it's more about opportunities, especially when you think about the development and deployment of more sustainable and zero emission fuels not only regionally, but also globally. And I think the establishment of green corridors across the world seas and ports will be a pivotal element in steering the transition, but also improving investment clarity. And I think investment clarity is key and that needs to also come from the policy frameworks that, are, that we are currently setting. Just to follow up on what you just mentioned, do you think that the maritime sector, including ships, ports, and you know, the overall sector has progressed as the rest of the supply chain? Well, it's a delicate question. Um, if we take a moment to reflect, I think there can be no doubt on the importance of the maritime shipping sector. It forms the backbone of our global economy. For example, for the EU, almost 90% of the EU's external freight trade is seaborne. However, we cannot ignore that the maritime shipping sector was not included in the Paris Agreement, which is the crucial global treaty and pledge to keep our planet livable. And the maritime sector is behind in comparison to other sectors when it comes to the deployment of green technologies. If we look at the growth in shipping emissions, it shows that the sector is simply not on track towards climate neutrality. Actually, to be honest, the transport sector overall is a sector which has seen its emissions grow and are expected to grow further, and this despite various technological developments and energy efficiency gains. In addition, Many climate legislations also focused on other sectors rather than the maritime shipping sector, but this is changing rapidly as we speak, especially in the EU, which includes maritime shipping and ports in its climate emission reduction goals. And I think this is a much needed and good thing. 
So a delicate question, but I think one that we should ask ourselves and we should not ignore the environmental footprint of the sector as has mostly happened in the past. But now we need to be asking what is needed and what can be done. How can we support this transition? So forward looking to achieve a climate neutral maritime sector. Wolfgang, how do you think the maritime sector could catch up with the rest of the supply chain? Uh, first, um, I, I build on what I have said before. So uh, it's about boosting collaboration uh, across the decarbonization ecosystem. It is supporting uh, research, innovation in clean tech. Uh, then uh, I would like to re reiterate what Luis said. Uh, the sector should live up to the weight and role and embrace and support the crafting of uh, regulation. Yes, uh, nothing will happen without the pioneers like MERS, CMA, CGM, but there are also smaller ones like uh, Mary Aura in Finland. Um, uh, but more important for me are the followers. And I, I said that before and I underline it here. It is about mobilizing the entire industry. And, and that means uh, the pioneers have not only to, to dash ahead, but also to establish platforms that can mobilize followers uh, to make decarbonization mainstream. And uh, I think that that's already enough on the plate for next year. Thank you very much, Wolfgang. I will keep a key word that you mentioned, ecosystem. So, Andrew, because we discussed a lot of the, about the shipping companies, I would like to come back and ask, what is the role of ports in the decarbonization journey? Yeah, um, picking up on Wolfgang's point, last point there about moving the entire sector forwards and, and not just uh, a select few or a select few taking some leading and core actions alone. Um, ports really are, you know, the nexus uh, in global supply chains and, and a hub or, or a bridge for shipping to, to communities that uh, are served uh, for foods, medicines, etc. Um, but also the source of those engaged in, in shipping's activities, whether it's uh, stevedores or, or potential seafarers uh, at sea. So as I see it, they, they play an important and key role within the decarbonization journey. There's the role of bunkering, uh, assisting and incentivizing decarbonization efforts, as I mentioned with the Port of Vancouver earlier, to that sort of source and training of, of the seafarers. And we must remember that ports are an integral part of anything that we do in shipping. Collaboration with them is key, but remembering that most ports are exposed to natural hazards. Many climate, of course, driven and impacted, such as cyclones um, or earthquakes and flooding. And this really hampers or hinders potential uh, $63.1 billion worth of global trade um, being put at risk, uh, particularly in those small island developing states. So we very much see this as ports are an important part of enabling the transaction and must be at the table, uh, engaged in you know green corridors and, and other initiatives that are, are being driven by the industry to, to transition. Luis, back to you. Do you think that various bodies, for example, regulatory industry governments, have a critical role and how they could help the maritime sector to achieve uh, net zero targets? 
I think the word we're looking for is crucial. <laughs> I think they all have a crucial role to play and especially governments. Um, if you think about it, I mean, the main role of the government is to set the goals, to provide a clear legislative framework. And those frameworks need to include ambitious targets on sustainability, not only for the climate, but also talking, taking into account the social and digital transition. If you look at the EU today, we see a lot of initiatives and we've been working on many files and have achieved deals on that. So now it's a point of translating and implementing those, those initiatives. And what's really important, and I do want to stress that, is the nexus between industry, government and research institutions, the so-called triple helix. And why do I want to point that out? Well, because a lot of innovation and development will still be needed in the coming years. And we should not forget that it is the industry that actually will need to deliver on the climate targets set by those policies and governments. And those governments in return should support or reinforce those that want to move towards those climate targets. Thank you, Louise. And I think what you just mentioned about the triple helix and the digital element, which is going to lead me to the next question that goes straight to Andrew. As we're preparing for that new greener and more digital shipping era, crew is also going to be needed there and they need to develop relevant skills for a more sustainable and more connected maritime sector. However, in order to achieve that, they need the right support from the shipping sector. How do you think that can be achieved? Yeah, I think we're, we're at an in interesting point that where we see shipping competing for the first time for its fuels. So I think we're going to see over the coming years, shipping competing very much more for resources, being the seafarers for the first time also, given the transitions that we see. Um, so in the sort of transition and the, the discussions in the industry around a just transition, the, the needs are clearly emerging. Um, and the horizon, of course, is driven by decarbonization and new fuels, new propulsion technologies, as you're mentioning, new digitalization, uh, data leading to new processes, practices, and even interventions uh, with or without their involvement or, or, or control. And that touches, of course, on automation and autonomous technologies and a changing world demographic with flows of trade and labor changing dramatically. So the future seafarer um, will have different skills, experience, uh, expectations and demands, and training and readiness is, is at the heart of whether, whether it's the current seafarers going through this transition or new seafarers from different places around the world with different skill sets uh, being ready for operational life at sea. Um, so demand for like, for like skills across sectors, again, this cross-sectoral challenge and learnings uh, will mean that shipping, uh, as I said, will compete like never before. Um, so shipping very much must act differently to attract and retain this future talent whilst ensuring you know this is a safe place to work uh, seafarers can go home they can go home on time uh, and recognize and respect workforce labor and human rights for those at sea just the same as those respected for onshore so this is a case of everybody trying to achieve and deliver on the operational goals and seafarers are no different and there will certainly be a different group of seafarers in the future coming to the industry it's a very interesting point, Andrew. Also, the human element in shipping has been a discussion topic for a previous Navigating Marine Risks episode. Wolfgang, is autonomous the way to achieve the carbonization targets? Or do we need to prepare our crew for the energy transition? Autonomous can only contribute, uh, and this not in the short term, because I think we are dealing with a complex matter 
Uh, we're talking about ships in the middle of the oceans, away from from coasts, and uh, technology isn't perfect, so they can uh, get out of control. And I don't see us yet in a position that can ensure that uh, the the safety level is as we wish it to be. But uh, autonomous ships, when they kick in, yes, they run more efficiently, uh, but only if the parties uh, or the contracts allow this. And this is, again, the story about the web of historic contracts. Uh, another aspect is uh, if we take the crew out of the equation, of course, we take them out of the risk zone, meaning uh, discussions around the risk of ammonia-powered ship, ships goes away at least uh, offshore. In the ports, it's still a different story, but maybe we can move the ammonia-powered ship ports somewhere where it's uh, less risky. And uh, in general, the question points to, should that be a priority? I think there are other things which we should prioritize, like fleet optimization, ship design, advanced weather routing, make it, make it a must. And uh, yeah, there, there is so much to do, which we can uh, launch now and harvest uh, the benefits now. And, and never nevertheless, uh, humans are are keen to, to drive technology. So that will move on anyway and kick, kicks in when we feel comfortable with it. I'm just keeping two key words that you mentioned, risk and safety uh, level. So I would like to ask you, Luis, do you think that we have the right regulatory and safety framework for new fuels? And if not, are regulatory bodies working in that direction? As it seems that technology is evolving faster than regulations. Yeah, I think a lot will be developed and fine-tuned in the coming years. For example, we just have the new deal on energy intensity uh, targets on fuels used on board. Therefore, I think safety aspects should be developed in parallel. I think that that goes without saying. And um, what is important, I guess, is that these new fuels, they do require different support infrastructure on board. They have different technical requirements, for example, taking into account the chemical flashpoints or toxicity of such fuels. And I do believe that there's a lot of work uh, on our table, both at a regional level, but also at an international level. So in short, um, yes, we already have, of course, a lot of safety frameworks, but I think a lot of work uh, will be developed in the coming years as well, especially when we do see the uptake of such uh, new fuels. And if I may, uh, Stavros, I would like to pick up uh, on one thing that, that Wolfgang said about autonomous uh, ships and, and crew and risks. And you are correct, Wolfgang, of course, that certain ships um, will have a higher risk. And if you make the, the comparison with crew, they will have to be retrained, reskilled. But I don't think that autonomous ships take away uh, the entire uh, perspective of risk. I mean, there's also the risk for biodiversity. What happens when we have a spill with these new fuels? We do really need to think about that. And we need to incorporate that in our, in our new safety standards around the use of those fuels. And as we're talking about that uh, regulatory framework, uh, Luis, could the regulations that we have in place guide the maritime sector to the decarbonization targets? And if not, what else do you think can be done? Well, I definitely think they have the potential. Um, and I think the EU has really altered its course. Uh, we had the Green Deal that has its ambitious goal of climate neutrality by 2050, including for the maritime sector. We just have the new deal on the adoption of or the inclusion of the maritime sector in the EU emission trading system. 
and that will start in 2024. We have a provisional deal on the energy intensity targets of the fuels used on board. We have a provisional deal on fuel infrastructure at the port site, etc. I'm happy to go more into detail, but I don't think we have time for that in this podcast. But yes, yeah, so to conclude, I really think that the EU is making a big change and it's a first step. But I also recognize that we will need more global cooperation. And um, I do think these EU policies are clearly pushing, for example, at the IMO level, but more will be needed. Andrew, does the maritime transport sector need pushing from regulators to achieve decarbonization? If yes, why are regulations the right way forward in a heavily regulated industry like shipping? Yeah, I, th- I think you, it is heavily regulated and, and globally regulated. And I think they're, they're two key points. And, and the long tail of um, ship owners compared to those large, very large and, and leading uh, actors that have been mentioned earlier in the podcast generally are moving only when required by regulation. And I think we've seen an example, maybe, you know, some will say it was too late, et cetera, but the International Convention for Prevention of Pollutants from Ships, um, MARPOL, set the global upper limit of sulfur content, you know, in 2020, uh, which reduced uh, sulfur content from 35 to 0.5% as uh, mandatory limits on, on ships. And and this led to, you know, a 77% or so drop in sulfur oxide emissions. So regulation can trigger change and it brings the industry along together, which helps unify global regulations, certainly helps set a level playing field. And as mentioned earlier, you know, helps to reduce that stranded asset and manage risk and and take advantage of opportunities together, uh, which will greatly uh, assist. So... Whilst we see that regulation, you know, respects science and encourages companies to commit to science-backed ways of reducing emissions, it certainly helps move in, in, a, in a unified way. And although, as Louise mentioned, the EU is quite rightly pushing in terms of ambition, uh, we're all hoping very much that when we see the IMO revised strategy in, in July, that this actually takes um, uh, inspiration from the regional pushes that we seize and and leads a very ambitious global way forward. And Wolfgang, coming back to you, should the regulators consider the technological limitations that the maritime sector has? So, for example, that is operating in remote environments. I think that regulation should not care about the type of technology. It should care about the safety of technology. And I agree with Louise, of course, that uh, the protection of biodiversity is is a big point. And the public sector should uh, ensure that innovation and uh, technological development is is happening. Uh, But technology is part of the how and not a part of the what. And I think the what lies with the regulator. So what targets, what ambition, what rules, what frameworks, but how these targets will be achieved uh, is uh, the responsibility of um, research and, and private sector. And I, I would like to make a comment on, on what Andrew said. I, I think that global trade in general is not very well regulated. That made it so su- successful. 
And I think that we need new international conventions. We may need even new international organizations to regulate commodities, trading, and port activities, which are currently not covered. Just a, a point of divergence, but maybe it's, it's complementary. As we're talking about that kind of complementarity, in order to develop all the sustainability targets that we need and to be able to achieve them, Luis, I would like to ask you, is there enough public funding to support decarbonization targets? Well, <laughs> that's a very difficult question, uh, Stavros, but I think I should be, uh, should be straightforward on that. Um, the investments that lay ahead are without a doubt very extensive and public funding will only be a small piece of that puzzle to be very direct. We have a scarce set of public resources and the ones that we have, I think, in my opinion, should go towards development, scaling up and uptake on a large scale of net zero solutions and fuels. I can give you an example, uh, the new deal on the ETS uh, emission uh, trading system, which will include maritime uh, shipping, a part of those revenues will be recycled to go back to the sectors. It comes down to about 20 million allowances. So depending on the emission allowance price, something between 1.7 and 2 billion via the innovation fund. But is it enough? Of course not. I think uh, as Wolfgang already uh, said, governments should put the uh, ambitions, set the framework, but it's up to industry to attain and to achieve on those ambitions. And so following that, a large effort will be needed uh, coming from the industry uh, when it comes to uh, financing uh, the transition. Andrew, the energy intensity of net zero fuels is not the same. So ships will have to stop more frequently for refueling or they will have to reduce their carrying capacities. So. How will shipping business models adapt to address the energy intensity issue that we're going to face in the near future? Yeah, I think uh, adaption is the key word here. And we've seen the sector adapt to many changes, either in fuels or propulsion. Um, you know, we've gone from wind to fossil fuels, talking now again about wind assisted, at least uh, in the industry. But we'll need to do so to continue to build a resilient and, and uh, sustainable supply chain uh, for the sector. But that challenge that you you mentioned, Stavros, uh, in terms of fuel availability, there's certainly going to be changes to the supply chain in infrastructure as we see it. And this may drive further adaption in terms of those operating uh, models uh, for, for ship owners. The size of vessels uh, may change in the future, maybe less larger, uh, more nimble. Uh, but perhaps the ownership models, uh, given the investment uh, point that you made also, will change. The, the current um, models have been embedded for decades, and this may face some disruption, and perhaps even leading to a shift that we see in other sectors, uh, such as automotive, um, where we see uh, vehicles as a service um, uh, undergoing a change and transition. And so maybe in the future, we will see ships as a service. Um, I think those considerations should not uh, necessarily be out of sight and are probably being considered by those leading the, the investment um, portfolios for the future. Thank you very much, Andrew. And as you mentioned about uh, the various uh, business models, do you think that circular economy will have an impact on the current shipping business models? Yes, I do. Um, you know, shipping has to decarbonize. It has to meet the targets of the Paris Agreement. And so we have to look at emissions that are beyond the fuels as well. And I mentioned ship life cycle earlier. And of course, circularity is, is a key element in that. Um, the SSI put out a report in 2021 
there's much potential when it comes to this. And the focus that we have had is on steel and the full life cycle of a vessel, very much like there's now a full life cycle focus on, on the fuels. So steel is the main material in, in a vessel. Accounts for I don't know close to ninety percent of um, a vessel's uh, components, and perhaps the build and the end of life dismantling uh, phases account for between five to ten percent of a ship's emissions. Um, so steel is a big part of that. So yes, absolutely have a big impact on current ship business models going forwards. Thank you very much, Andrew. And I can see, Louise, you also want to make a comment on those business models and circular economy. Yeah, I mean, I could not agree more with, with Andrew. And it's also something that uh, regulators will be looking at and how we produce, consume, how do we deal uh, with the materials that we have. And uh, Andrew already mentioned it, end of life. Another aspect that comes into account is also how are these ships being dismantled? What labor conditions um are, are are do are we seeing um so very important topic and i think uh, circular economy will b definitely be higher on the political agenda in the years to come thank you and um a question that i would like to address to everybody but i would like to start with wolfgang first wolfgang what do you imagine the future net zero maritime transport sector would look like now let me answer that in a few bullets um so i see a system oriented future I see a wisely regulated future, hopefully. I see a future with a lot of new technology and strong innovation. We have seen that in the past and it will only accelerate. I hope it accelerates in the right sectors or the right fields, which is clean tech. Uh, I see a diverse future, hopefully also more biodiversity. And uh, I see um, a human-centric future because we have no choice. Um, we have destroyed our, our environment and um, to a certain extent, even our social fabric to a, uh, in a way that requires some repairing and rethinking. So that's, that's my vision. It's full of hope. And uh, as I said before, with a lot of, of work ahead of us. Louise, if I can ask you also to forecast the future. <laughs> um, let me be straightforward. I would like that future to be before 2050, maybe if possible 2040. I realize a lot of development is still needed, but if I can imagine my future net zero maritime transport sector, it's one that already uh, attains that those goals at 2040. I think for me, the sector can look very different from today. Andrew already mentioned it. I think the average fleet, average age of the fleet uh, can be reduced significant, significantly by the entry of many new high-tech vessels. Imagine using clean zero emission fuels. Um, there's also a lot of surface on the ships. It would be nice if a ship would also produce its own energy along the way. Uh, so I do see, and I echo the point of, uh, of Wolfgang, um, a future with a lot of new technology and strong innovation. And in addition to that, and I will reiterate my point on, on the social aspect, I would also like to see that net zero future to include more fair working conditions for the personnel on board and with respect for the workforce. Thank you very much, Louise. And Andrew, what's your view for the future? Uh, very much where sustainability is at the heart of all the decisions that are, are being made. Um, there certainly be differences in design of ships, size of ships, uh, technology on board. Uh, and I pick up on Wolfgang's point that it's human-centric because I think this is all about inclusion. 
collaboration and by inclusion i i don't just mean different um, diversity of people genders and and so on this is about the industry being brought along together so sustainability first and that then leads to okay if this is what we need to do to survive take into consideration the planetary needs the human needs social needs optimizing the the profit and and cash flows is the question that follows sustainability rather than sustainability being a, okay how do we handle this given what we think we have left uh, based on our business model so sustainability first thank you very much andrew it has been great to discuss this hot topic of the challenges and opportunities related to sustainability in maritime transport and the supply chain with you andrew Louise and Wolfgang. And many thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stavros. Thank you. Happy to have been here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Navigating Marine Risks, produced in partnership with AIG. I hope we provided some valuable insights to a crucial issue for shipping, a sector that's responsible for the transportation of 80% of anything we consume daily. I'll be back with the next in the series soon. But for now, from me, Stavros Karaberidis, goodbye. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group Incorporated or its subsidiaries or affiliates, AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. AIG makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, or validity of any information provided during this podcast series, and will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its use.